Welcome to Flaps Podcast. Welcome to November's podcast. Come on, Elliot, cheer up. Remember, remember, it's nearly December. That means Christmas is on the way and lots mm, of parties. I know. Shh. Keep it down, mate, please. Keep it down. Why? Because my head is still a bit tender after that tax-deductible flaps production meeting ah. in the pub mm. with Pablo Mason. Yes, we learned uh, many valuable lessons from Pablo that night. But the most important one is never try to outdrink an RAF squadron leader. Yeah, it was such a good night. We actually managed to lose Pablo. However, we're relieved to say we vectored him back to the safety of the podcast after he became uncertain of position in a major UK city. Mm. In this edition, Elliot pays a return visit to the Manchester Runway Visitor Park. This time to have a look at the Nimrod that's enjoying a hard-earned retirement after nearly 40 years service. A bit like Pablo Mason. I'm just going to now test the engine bay fire detection system. We speak to Andrew Haynes, the CAA's chief executive, about the authorities' plans to make life simpler for GA pilots. The thing that really struck me when I began to learn to fly was the vast majority of pilots have no real interaction with the CAA, apart from the issue of the licence. And there's another flaps flying. This time we make a grass landing at Goodwood, as opposed to a wood landing at good grass bit weird. What are you on about? I have no idea. I think I might still be drunk. Bacon sandwiches are absolutely spot on, as you can probably tell by my belt size. <laughs> Flaps podcast. So good, it makes your bum fitch. Winter's on the way, and that means potentially less flying. So how can you get your air fix? Mm, Hamley's Toy Shop? Amazon? Argos? No, 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 no. Not, not air fix. I mean, air fix. Oh, kind of air fix yeah no air fix not air not fix. air fix right okay I'm yeah with you. do you understand that yeah, just about yes okay good can i get on with it there are loads of great aircraft attractions up and down the country including the manchester runway visitor park you've been there before haven't you yes they've got a concord i went to see that uh, and you can hear it in the july 2011 edition of the flaps podcast this time though i went back to have a look at the nimrod it's x-ray victor 231 it's in action in war zones like the falklands afghanistan and iraq now though it's somewhere much more dangerous manchester, manchester. Sorry, Manchester. So Elliot spoke to Ross Williamson, the head guide at the visitor park, who began by telling him more about the aircraft. We're coming through the, the back um, port door. We're in the ordnance area. and Essentially, this is an area where you could pretty much do anything. Everything you're seeing here now is a mixed configuration. We've got a number of seats in. We've got some Sonoboy racks, Sonoboy launches. It's a very versatile area, so it's, a, it's your carrying area. There's passenger seats in this uh, this part. Is this where the crew would have sat? This is where, um, well, basically any people you were carrying on board could be seated. The seats on military transport aircraft always face back. So when you're sat in the seats, you're looking towards the tail rather than towards the nose. And it makes sound sense if you think about it, because you have to do a, an emergency stop. You're going to get pushed back in your seat, not forward and out of it. So we've got 10 seats in here. The Comet seats, because the Nimrod was derived from the Comet 4C. So we've got these in just so people can sit in there and experience that. Got a couple of Sonoboy racks. Now Sonoboys are basically what you use to find submarines. You drop them in the water, different types will do different things, but in essence you take a profile of the water, then you drop boys in the water to listen for the submarine. And towards the end you drop a different type of boy, which will actively ping. It will send a signal out, bounces back off the submarine, gives you confirmation you've definitely got what you expect. 
Where are we going to next? We're just passing now over the wings. So this is where the emergency exits sit. So if you do have to ditch, then this is how you get out the aeroplane. Um, had to be used a couple of times through uh, Nimrod's life. Not on this aeroplane, of course, because once you're in the water, typically you're sunk. Yes. <laughs> so, one, of, one of the R1s actually went down after maintenance and the pilot did a fabulous job, landed it on the Mori Firth, so it's in the water, everybody get out safely. So it's, um, it's a great bit of skill. Some of the other stations you've got, uh, radar operator station, the acoustics area, we've got three workstations here. Uh, once you've got your sonar boys in the water, the data from those sonar boys gets sent back onto these screens and the people sat at the workstation would analyse that data. And you're looking at just patterns of noise, basically. Um, Maybe aware that everything in the water makes a noise, whether it's a baby dolphin, a whale, a ship, an aircraft going over the top. It all gives a different pattern. So what these people are doing is analysing those data patterns. And the idea is you come to the point where, yep, you can say you've got a submarine. The training was so good you could say it's a Russian submarine. And it's not just a Russian, it's this class, and it's actually this particular submarine. And they could tell that just from the patterns? Just from the patterns, yep. Um, just as we pass, there's a little dome. Yeah, what is that? I nearly, I nearly banged my foot on that. It's what is that? It's designed to catch your feet. It's not a little dome, it's a huge dome. <laughs> well, it's about a foot high and about <laughs> eight inches diameter. And if you lift that off, that's a cover for a periscope. Oh, brilliant. Because underneath the floor, you've got a bomb bay that runs the whole length of the Nimrod. The only way of seeing what's going on in the bomb bay in the air is by using that periscope. So it's a periscope that goes down? It does. Periscope want... down, not up? Yes. Yeah, normally think periscope submarines. <laughs> yes. You actually, you're looking down in the bay because if you've got a, a fire alarm, you need to see if there's an actual fire in the Bombay. Likewise, if you think you've launched a weapon and it's not gone, it's handy to be able to have a look around and see. Now, that's the only way of doing it. Having mentioned weapons, sort of things you put in the Bombay, if you're on anti-submarine duty, you're looking at torpedoes, depth charges. If you're over the land, you could carry £1,000 bombs. You can carry anti-ship missiles. It's a whole range of things. It's a very versatile aeroplane. And how many weapons could this carry at a time? Typically, you're looking at... Um, Torpedo and depth charge wise, a load of potentially four torpedoes, four depth charges. So it's quite a potent uh, machine. That looks like an old typewriter. Is that like a telex machine or something? It is. It's um, Basically, it's a teletype. <laughs> and it, the idea is you can record everything that you're yeah. doing. There's a paper tape punch, pre prepare messages on the paper tape. We've got a marine band listening capability. You've got a. Well, you can broadcast and receive pretty much anything. And of course, there's encryption devices for encrypting the information that you're actually sending and receiving. The sense of space in this part, I mean, it's, it's, it is huge. It's like an office, this bit. Yeah, when it's empty, it does seem like um, well, a small office, but you've got to remember you've got people in here. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people running around. It's yeah. suddenly become very, very, Seats are very going to be packed. further back. Um, it would seem a little bit more um, compact. Just before we leave the station, it's worth pointing out there's a, a special switch. So it's above the tactical navigator station on the top right. And OK, let's have a look at that. Uh, armament DC supply special weapons is that the one? That's the ones. Uh, that switch is part of the nuclear consent oh. procedure. You'll find a couple of switches either labelled like that or nuclear consent. Nimrod could carry nuclear depth charge. So if the need was there, you've got a, a nuclear submarine. Submarines are quite uh, complex things these days. A nuclear sub can go under the water, stay under the water until the food runs out. Yeah. So you're looking at the best part of three months. They make their own air, purify their own water. Um, got 35 years worth of fuel on so they can sit in very deep water for a very long time conventional weapons probably not going to get near it but the nuclear one would so they'll never tell you whether it actually carried those weapons or not but it had the capability and of course you had to go through the training for the procedures and the process to launch them 
And I like the way it's just called special weapons. That's well, there's a nuclear consent on the flight deck, so it's um, it's different things in different places. But the special switches, you, it's it's not a standard flick it switch, you have to pull a switch out. It's a deliberate act because of course. Yeah, you don't want to be doing it by mistake, do you? So how, how can I can I push it now or, or nothing bad's gonna happen, is it? No, nothing bad'll happen. What do I do? Happening. You literally grab the, the switch, yeah, you pull it towards you, yeah, and then you flick it up. We do power up our Nimrod, we've got electrical power to it. We don't run the engines, but uh, we can power certain bits of kit on. I'll just switch a few of those on. Fairly standard flight instruments. Again, you've got the, if you, you're flying your Cessna, you'll see. It's, it's all same. very recognisable, isn't it? It's, Absolutely. Uh, but it's tried and tested, isn't it? So it works and uh, you know that, that's all you need, really. It is. Um, and one of the nice things we can do, because we have power, is we can demonstrate a few of the alarms to people. Oh, brilliant. Again, it's not we like an alarm. Here we do. <laughs> yeah. Just going to sound off the auto trim alarm. So, quite a, a subtle one, that one. I'm just going to now test the engine bay fire detection system. Oh, you're not going to miss that, are you? No, that's definitely... You uh, need to hear that one, though. You've got to do something about that, most definitely. Uh, this final one is the stall warning system. Because of course, if you're at low speed, the last thing you need to do is go and stall, especially when you're at low level. So, uh, if I flick this, it will just set off the stick shaker. Yeah, you're not going to miss that, are you? There's no, no. way you're going to miss that. The whole control column literally <laughs> violently vibrates. So it's uh, again, it's not something that a lot of people get the chance to experience. But this is what we can do on the on the Nimrod these days. It's great. Well, we've moved outside to have a look uh, at the exterior of the Nimrod now. We're, uh, we're at the front and uh, looking at the refuelling probe, aren't we, Ross? We are, yeah. I'm standing here. It doesn't look any easier to get that probe in the, the basket than it did on board. Does that, I mean, that must extend a fair... Does that extend... No, nope, that's it. That's it's, it? It's fixed, yeah. Imagine you're below, perhaps 150 feet below another aircraft. You've got a pipe running out that aircraft with what looks like a big shuttlecock on the end. Yes. And you've got to get that probe, which has got to be about five inches diameter, into the, the basket and the way life works if you don't get it quite right the basket very conveniently moves to one side as you get close yeah so you have to fall back and then try again and your speed has got to be just that little bit faster than the aircraft that's providing the fuel is flying because of course you've got to dock in with that and then give a bit of slack for the that's it once it's locked then they pump the fuel so there's not there. much room for maneuver there no, is there that's a, some good skill. flying skills and well you've got to remember as well you might have to do that at night yeah. So you're talking about using lights and in radio silence potentially. So. Of course. And of course when you stood here as well, you can see the shape of the comet, can't you? You see the, the, the very sort of uh, recognisable cowling of the, the comet engine. You can. The, the Comet 4C was... Well, the last two Comet 4Cs they converted into Nimrods as prototypes. And then from then they went on to build 49. And it's smaller than the Comet 4C, but it's, um, in essence, that's what it is. You that's can certainly see from. the heritage going oh, on the can, outside. Most definitely. On the, this side of the aircraft, on the starboard side, it's got a, a glass dome on the front. And glass dome's about two feet in diameter, and inside there would be the searchlight. And the idea of this, if you're travelling low over the sea, the um, P2 has a little side stick. You could control the searchlight, steer it, focus it. It's a very, very powerful searchlight. And they'll tell you stories about these things being in the, uh, the hangar for maintenance and somebody switching the searchlight on by mistake and melting the paint off the hangar door. <laughs> it's a pretty powerful thing. Thank you ever so much for showing us around. It's a great pleasure. It's, uh, it's a, a fantastic collection. And if you, have, if you have an afternoon off, a day off, head to Manchester to the, uh, 
uh, the Runway Visitor Centre and come and see this and the Concorde and what other exhibits have you got? We've got uh, another section of DC-10 which we don't normally do tours on, that's more of an edu- educational area. We've got the last commercial airliner built in the UK, an Avro RGX-100 and we have a Trident, uh, Trident 3B. That typically is open at weekends so uh, there's no charge for the RGX or the Trident. We do guided tours on Nimrod and Concorde and it's wise to pre-book if you're going to come down and see either of those two aeroplanes. And you can watch all the planes land. You can. The fence is literally no more than 100 feet from the edge of the taxiway. So you can be as close as you can get to aircraft actually taxiing taking off. Listen, Ross, lovely. Thank you very much for uh, showing us around. And uh, yeah, well, I'm, sure, I'm sure many of our listeners will be up to see you. I hope so. So I look forward to seeing them. If you like that and want to hear more, you can. There's a full 30-minute Flaps extended version of it on our website. That's at flapspodcast.com. Flaps. In the air. Everywhere. As we've said, winter's on the way, but British summers being what they are, you can't always tell the difference. So how does an airfield with all-grass runways cope when the weather is really bad? For this month's Flaps flying, we thought we'd find out. So we flew to the south coast to Goodwood and Elliot spoke to Rob Wilderbore, the general manager there. He began by telling us if the British weather and grass runways are often a problem for flying. Most of the, the days that we've had so far this year when we've not been able to fly uh, are, are not due directly to flooding. You know, we've had some bad visibility, we've had some high winds, you know, we, we started off with a whole load of snow as well. Um, so it, it, the drainage in itself isn't that bad. We have got three grass runways, but um, we're fortunate that we got a good subsidiary when we, uh, when we use 3214 in the winter. We put out 32 right, 14 left, and it just enables us to. Um, put the heavier traffic, uh, that spread the load somewhat, should we say. So you don't do any seaplanes just yet? Uh, no, but we do maintain one. There's one in the <laughs> south of England, one amphibious, uh, Cessna 182, and we actually maintain that. So you can imagine the jokes in the winter around us looking after that aeroplane. You've got a good selection of planes here, haven't you? There's, there's, the, the fleet's pretty impressive. There's a good, good wide selection you can fly. Yeah, we do. I mean, we've got about 110 aircraft based here. Goodwood Flying School ourselves, we own five brand new Cessna 172 SPs, the Garmin 1000 glass. We were all admiring those, beautiful on the way, lovely 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 glass. Well, we had enough of the old fleet, you know, it was a fairly disparate fleet of Piper Cherokees and Tomahawks and typical serviceability issues where people have booked in for a PPL lesson and, you know, once again it's cancelled. So we said, look, this just is not good customer service. Um, Enough is enough. Let's, you know, bite the bullet, buy five new aeroplanes that are identical. And we've, we've gone from low-wing analogue to high-wing glass, but our customers have come with us. And, you know, they're, they're a wonderful fleet. They really are. And, and has that been a big cost issue? Has that reflected on the, the cost of uh, well, using the fleet here? We bought the aircraft new, and by the time we've done all the cost modelling, we worked out that they were about £15 an hour more expensive to hire than our old PA28181. So when you look at it in terms of cost, yeah, it's slightly more expensive. I think, though, when you look at it in terms of value, I'd like to think that we really do offer good value for money. I mean, these are brand new aircraft, great reliability, glass cockpit, airbag restraints. You know, whilst the the 172 is an old training aeroplane, 
this is the most modern variant and you know our, our customers by and large are over the moon with the product that we offer so if someone flies into goodwood what else have you got here you've got the ultimate high guys here they're they're doing this stuff aren't they here? yeah i mean in in terms of aviation what we've tried to create over the last couple of years is something of a fulfillment hub so in the absence of owning a spitfire ourselves you know we've got the boltby flight academy uh, who operate their spitfire here for training uh, we've got Ultimate High, who are very, very keen to get back on side uh, after they'd been operating their uh, the, the whole business out of Kemble. So, um, cut a long story short, they moved back in last year, and we enjoy having them putting on our corporate hospitality. Uh, it's a very popular product, the whole ACM, you know, dogfighting that they do, but more seriously than that, they take flight safety very, uh, very importantly, and they, they place a, a lot of emphasis on getting people in for upset training, you know, airline pilots, uh, and those sort of courses are really starting to work as well. In addition to the Cessna 172s that we bought, we've also got a Harvard. We bought our Harvard about seven years ago, and that is about as close as you can legitimately get to paying for a go in a warbird nowadays, and that aeroplane is doing about 100 hours a year for us. And what else is there around here? Obviously, there's the uh, the race course, isn't there? The, the world famous, yeah. glorious Goodwood. Yeah, we we treat Goodwood Aerodrome as the as the entry, the the sort of portal, if you like, to the whole Goodwood estate. Uh, we we're not just we don't like to think of ourselves as just being uh, another airfield. You know, we've got the Goodwood Park Hotel. We have got the motor circuit, we've got the race course, we've got two golf courses, we've got an organic farm, we've got Goodwood House, and we've got a magnificent listed building called the Kennels, which is the clubhouse for all of our clubs, whether it's horses, um, you know, the, the road racing club, the aero club, or the golf clubs. You know, the, the Kennels is the appointed clubhouse for all of our sporting members, and, you know, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful asset. What's the history? The aerodrome started before the war when Freddie March, who is the current Lord March's grandfather, he handed over the land to the Air Ministry to become a satellite airfield to Tangmere. Now, we really got going around the time of the Battle of Britain when 145 Squadron were based here with their hurricanes. And then subsequent to that, we had Spitfires here, we had Hawker Typhoons. You know, we were called RAF West Hampton at the time. It was before it was Goodwood Aerodrome. And Douglas Bader actually was based here and flew his last sortie from here before he got, uh, before he got captured. And the 31st Fighter Group, which were the first ever American combat group in the Second World War, they flew here in their Spitfire Mark V-Bs in 1942. In July 1942, they were the first Americans here. And there's a really varied and rich history of you know, a, a multitude of different aircraft being based here. Prior to us being RAF West Hampton, Freddie March used to fly from a field just over the road called the Flying Field. He used to design, build and fly his own aircraft and he had a, a, a magnificent thatched hangar, the foundations of which are still there today. We used the Flying Field to 
get aircraft in for the Festival of Speed Aviation Exhibition, which is something that we're very proud of. We've been doing the aviation exhibition now for the last five years, and this year, which marks the 20th anniversary of the Festival of Speed, we've actually got the aviation exhibition right as part of the core event. So we're aiming to get about 15 aircraft into the flying field to position them up to the main Festival of Speed site and really give our exhibitors some true value for money by having you know, a, a large majority of the 180,000 people that visit us over the four days you know, taking an active interest in aviation. And obviously the important question, what's your bacon sandwiches like, Rob? Bacon sandwiches are absolutely spot on, as you can probably tell by my <laughs> belt size. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's always a good selling point. Yeah. So, um, is there anything anyone needs to know? I mean, obviously, it, it is grass runways, isn't it? So that's, that's a slight issue, but, you know, no, no different as long as you've landed on one before. I no, guess it's not a problem, is it? I mean, it's gr they're grass runways. The 3214 is the second longest grass runway in the country. Uh, we've got 1,300 metres. We've had anything up to a B-17 and a DC-6 land here before. And, um, you know, the, the flying school itself, I mean, we teach people how to fly. We do the IMC rating. We do night ratings. We are very proud of having... Um, uh, an FTO so we actually train instructors to instruct here as well we just really want to be known for our, our sort of friendly approach so there's a lot to come and see and do um, within Goodwood Aviation we have a, a vibrant aero club with over 750 members and that's growing each year we're very very keen not to go daft on landing fees and encourage as many people to uh, to come in as possible the fuel at the moment is very competitively priced and again that's in an effort to just try and you know throw the doors wide open and get as many people talking about goodwood and the wonderful th wonderful things that we can do here and it's flight information isn't it it's, just it's flight information at the moment where we're sort of semi-flight information where we've got air ground during a week quite often and flight information at weekend that is just while we're restaffing and because we've had some air traffic staff changes but it is our absolute intention to get back to full flight information service as soon as possible and uh, prior permission quick phone call prior permission ideally prior permission yeah that's okay. what we that's what we ask well listen as we said we've had a great afternoon here we've enjoyed it very much uh, you've given us a, a great welcome and uh, you even laid on the weather so we couldn't ask for any more we like to try <laughs> thank you lovely to speak to you rob thank you Elliot speaking to Rob Wilderbore, the general manager of Goodwood. If you want to visit, you can find out more online at goodwood.co.uk. It's Mason's Minute. Old dogs, new tricks. Recently, I had the opportunity to get back into a little aeroplane that was fully aerobatic and try and pull the wings off. Now, this happened not once, not twice but three or four times in the space of a few weeks. I had been commissioned by a television company, and I can't really say much more than that at the moment, but hopefully it will go forwards. And they wanted, or they want, to see how flying an aeroplane and talking about the weather can go together. Well, I was pleased to be involved in this. I went to Wellsbourne and I flew a Slingsby with a lovely guy called Dave, and there was a certain nervousness, I think, because 
I was fairly well known, I think, in the Wellsbourne area. I still get down there for breakfast at the most fabulous greasy spoon. And also, if I can hitch a ride with anybody, I will. But I haven't actually had the controls of a light aeroplane for a good while. Two, three years has to be. And, of course, there's this expectation. Everybody thinks you're going to be really fab because you used to fly fast jets and because you've got thousands of hours and stuff. Um, and you try and be really calm, but you're a little bit like the swan on the river. Um, against the tide. Everything looks graceful, but their old feet are paddling like mad. So I'd had a good read the night before of what the Slingsby could and could not do. And I strapped in and um, I hadn't got any real hesitation about feeling ill or not. Um, I've never felt ill in an aeroplane, I'm pleased to say. But I certainly got hesitation about whether or not I'd be embarrassed by pushing the wrong rudder pedal at the wrong time or taking the throttle off when I meant to put it on or pulling when I should have been pushing, whatever. But um, we got airborne. We headed off to the south of Wellsbourne on a lovely summer's day, clear sky, good horizon, lots to see. Um, found a little disused airfield as a datum point. And then I asked Dave if I could just sort of have a go at the aerobatics and he could rescue me from the unusual positions that would undoubtedly follow. Well, tell you what, it was just, it was an exquisite revival of 10, 20, 30 years, however long it had been since I'd flown aerobatics in a light aeroplane. And I had the most fabulous, fabulous time. Dave was very complimentary, I'm pleased to say. We fell out of a couple of manoeuvres, but I managed to climb back into them, if you like. We were upside down, the right way up. We were back to front and my neck hurt for days. But it was great fun. And I didn't let the side down. I was okay. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. If there's one thing that's frustrating to GA pilots, it's red tape. As the old adage says, it's amazing that this thing can fly with the weight of all the paperwork. Well, good news is on the way. There are moves afoot to make flying less bureaucratic. So we spoke to the CAA's chief executive, Andrew Haynes, who began by explaining what the red tape challenge is. Well, um, when the coalition government came into power in 2010, you might remember they were talking about a bonfire of the quangos in a determination to remove red tape and one of the things they did was uh, set up a series of challenges so a bit of sort of um, crowdsourcing of regulation if you like putting out um, areas of regulation across the whole of UK activity and inviting comment and challenge things that the public didn't like or didn't agree with or didn't understand. So this isn't just an aviation thing, is it? This is, this <coughs> no, it's is not. in all areas of government, but uh, it's, it's been very popular with um, the GA community, I understand. I think it's been almost exceptionally popular, probably the biggest response of any red tape challenge. Some of them, to be honest, have fallen rather flat, but this one really caught the imagination of the community. How many responses have you had? It's, it's a huge number, isn't it? I, I think the total number of responses is over 500, but there's something like 250 different issues have been raised. On what sort of things were coming up, Andrew, over and over again? Over-restrictive interpretation of regulation, particularly when it came to sort of ARSA requirements, not understanding why we do certain things, poor processes, lack of clarity in some of our guidance. I don't know if you've ever tried, if you've tried applying for a license recently, but the monster, which is CAP 804, uh, is <laughs> impenetrable to many people. <laughs> Syllabuses... Oh, 
still a buy if we're being correct, um, <laughs> out of date, or people seeing not, not people not understanding the utility of some of the questions. Uh, right the way through to things like why we don't allow seaplanes and things like that, which is not actually true. But, you know, there's, there are a few myths. I can't remember the myths off the top of my head. A simple one is that uh, the CA requires everybody to use uh, high-visibility vests on an airfield, which is not it's an health and safety best practice, but it's nothing at all to do with the CAA. But we all look so attractive in a nice bit of high-vis, Andrew. <laughs> Particularly a pink one, I think, oh, yes. these days, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah. That, that's that's a myth, then. Yeah. Um, I suppose ultimately with all of this, though, will if this all goes through and the red tape is cleared, will we just be able to go flying much more quickly? We're determined to keep it safe, but we believe that we can remove some of the unnecessary obstacles in that respect. So whether or not it'll be more, more quickly, but it'll certainly be easier. We aim to make it less expensive by removing unnecessary burden both on small-scale operators and on individuals. Your ability to acquire a license, the transaction of the license should be much easier by going online for most of that capability. Your ability to understand some of the regulations and some of the necessary preconditions for gaining the license should be much more straightforward. Uh, flexibility for things like experimental aircraft, deregulation of, uh, of certain types of uh, aircraft. We started with uh, single-seat microlights, but we are looking with the general aviation community at a whole host of other areas where we might be able to deregulate if local associations, national bodies are prepared to take that information on and take on the responsibility for having collective oversight. Presumably you mean people like uh, AOPA, the LAA, the BMAA? Yeah, absolutely. Those sort of bodies that have got sufficient infrastructure to say we will take on responsibility for conducting oversight. Because the thing that really struck me when I began to learn to fly was the vast majority of pilots have no real interaction with the CAA apart from the issue of the license. Hmm. And so if we're, the, if we're the primary vehicle for a safety message... They don't hear it very often. They might read one of our magazines very occasionally. They might see a report from us. Uh, they might get one of our information notices, but that's, you know, pretty ad hoc. Whereas if they're, if the source of communication on safety and safety improvement comes via an association they elect to be party to, uh, where they know the individuals, where those individuals have credibility with them as genuine aviators and not jobs worth bureaucrats, which is what they perceive some of the CEA to be, then it seems to me that ought to have a potential safety benefit as well as a benefit of uh, deregulating what comes down from the ivory tower. What, what do the associations such as the LAA and the BMA think about these proposed changes? Do they? I mean, it's ultimately, it's, is it not more work for them or is it give, give them more hands-on approach? I think um, they're really keen, but I think there's a degree of caution as well. They recognise that they need to be... Uh, set up and equipped for take, to take on some of those responsibilities. And um, in some cases, um, people want the best of both worlds. So some of the initial discussions with the BMAA suggest, for example, that whilst we're proposing complete deregulation of single-seat microlights, they'd like the option to, to regulate or deregulate mm. um, because that might help with resale value, might help with insurance, for example. So that adds a degree of complexity, and those are the sort of things we'll have to work through. And it's one of the nuances here that what might seem like the obvious answer of moving away from regulation, because of the marketplace, because aircraft are expensive things, they require insurance, people want to move them on. Having a regime that protects the long-term value for people 
is sometimes more attractive than the maximum level of deregulation. Andrew, I think it's it's fair to say, and, and also you can gauge it from the amount of response you had, that, that people are keen on this, aren't they? Getting rid of red tape, I think most people think is a good thing and anything that makes it easier and simpler and cheaper, then it's got to be good all round. The problem is with, with all of this, and again, it's a level of scepticism that you know a lot of the p- politicians say about the whole Europe thing. We are ultimately governed by EASA, so can you... You know, can you get rid of all the red tape, or 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 is this just a, a nice crowd pleasing thing that the government are proposing? Well, um, of course, with Annex Two aircraft, we're not governed by EASA, so for a start, that's area that we have under our control. Uh, <clears throat> the second thing around EASA is EASA have committed to a fundamental review of how they regulate general aviation, and it's responsibility of all of us, industry, individuals, and the CAA to lobby very hard to make sure that really comes to fruition. But within that, I mean, we've often been accused of taking the narrowest interpretation or the most rigorous interpretation of an EASA regulation. We can be more flexible in our interpretation. And um, the, I suppose the other obvious example are things like the IMC rating, where we've been, I've personally been very involved in ensuring we retain that because we make a good safety case. There's no point in going to AR and simply saying it hurts business, but if you can demonstrate that there's no safety rationale for a measure, um, then we have been able to get some improvement. And it's one of the areas where industry can really use CA expertise. Mm. We've got some very, very well-regarded, respected people. So, so what happens now then? Um, well, we are setting up a general aviation unit within the CA, actually, which I'm really excited about because... One of the problems historically has been GA responsibilities been uh, cascaded throughout the organisation, but very often that's meant people have had to deal with it alongside their big commercial aircraft roles. Their experience might not necessarily be in GA. So by creating the unit within the CAA, we're given a clear home to the vast majority of GA issues that we will populate with people who understand GA have good experience of it and are empathetic to the cause of general aviation and safe general aviation. It does seem surprising, actually, that, that, that this hasn't happened before. I mean, I was reading some of the stats. It's incredible, isn't it? What, 1.4 billion to the UK economy and, and 50,000 jobs from, from GA. That's, that's a huge number, isn't it? It is, and I think uh, for too long, general aviation has been seen as a rich man's hobby and not uh, you know, a, a vital part of our infrastructure. The seed corner, you know... It provides for uh, jobs and for um, entry into commercial aviation as well. Now, it's not the CAA's role to promote GA per se. We, as a regulator, we can only work within the statute that uh, Parliament provides for us. But what we realise we can do is, is, is make sure that we support it, which is a quite a subtle distinction between promotions uh, and supporting, but it's a, it's a useful one because we can make sure we don't put any obstacles in the way and we can help work with the sector to um, to get the right sort of regulatory regime, for example, with EASA. So um, what can GA do to help then? I think engage and engage constructively would be my, my biggest single request. So there are, there are, lot, there are lots of forums opening up uh, for people to feed, feed in their comments, either through the uh, organisations that they might be party to, uh, or through online forums where they can flag up potential gold plate you know the, what I notice with a lot of people about <clears throat> in their attitude to the CA is they, they've written us off 
in the sense that they regard us as you know uh, as faceless bureaucrats the um campaign against aviation cash always accepted all the other sort of you know insults and acronyms well they're all fine and i can take a joke with anybody but they contribute nothing to moving the issue forward so my real plea to people is to flag up issues that they might have concern about and to do that in a manner that we can look at uh, and then we can test ourselves and my commitment is that we will look at all of those issues constructively transparently and if we can flex our approach, we will. And if we can't, then we will give a clear rationale for why we're not able to do that. And Andrew, if um, if some of our listeners are listening to this at the moment thinking, there he is, the faceless bureaucrat from the CAA, banging on and on and on. Here we go again. <laughs> uh, you are actually a flyer, aren't you? I'm a, tra- I'm a trainee flyer. I'm, and maybe people might say that's why I'm particularly passionate about this subject. So I've you, seen you have a vested di- interest almost in this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a clear interest in making this doable, affordable, uh, and manageable for people. And I've seen for myself just how hard, how hard it is. If, as a novice, you just want to apply to get a PPL, for example, some of our material on this is very dense. So just two lessons for a start. So we have this thing called CAP 804, which is the licensing bible, where we've now issued a guidance document that so the vast majority of people will probably never need to refer to CAP 804, because there's, I think, a 20-page tw- guidance note that should tell them all they need to know about licensing. Well, We're looking at the PPL syllabus, so there's another one, to make sure that the questions we ask genuinely keep people safe and reinforce airmanship as opposed to technicalities of people that people don't actually need to use in their early days of flying. Well, listen, good luck with it, Andrew. And you know what? Anything that encourages people into the, into the hobby and, and into doing it and makes it more easy for everyone who is has, has got to be applauded. So uh, fingers crossed and we will, we'll watch with interest. Great. Thank you. Flaps Podcast. So that's it for this month. Thanks for listening. Remember, we're on Facebook as Flaps Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Flaps Podcast and find us online at flapspodcast.com and you can subscribe via iTunes too. We'll be visiting the Flying Show at the NEC at the beginning of December and you can hear our report from there next time. We're ready for departure. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps.